0: Hey everybody, this is Reuben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Chapter 6 I could hardly see when I got to Becky's. My pounding heart seemed to pile blood behind my eyeballs, filming my vision, and the whistle of my breath bounced and echoed between the frame walls of Becky's home and the house next door. I began testing each basement window, pushing each one inward with all my strength, using both my hands, then shuffling over the grass at a jog to the next. They were all locked. I'd circled the house and now I bunched the hem of my coat around my fist, held it against the glass of the window, and pushed, increasing the pressure, till suddenly it cracked. One piece fell inward, dropping into the basement, and broke, tinkling on the floor. From the hole in the glass, the cracks flared out, the other broken pieces bulging inward, but still hanging in place. I was thinking now and in the faint starlight I carefully picked out the broken fragments, one by one dropping them in the grass, widening the hole. Then I reached in, unlatched the window, opened it, then I crawled in, feet first, sliding down over the ledge on my belly till my feet found the floor. Pressing against my chest as I slid down, I felt the fountain pen flashlight I carry in my coat, then standing in the basement, I turned it on the feeble little yard-long beam was wide and diffused and showed nothing at all beyond a step or two ahead. Slowly I shuffled around that dark, unfamiliar basement, passing bundles of stacked-up old newspapers, a rusting screen door leaning against a cement-block wall, a paint-smeared saw-marked sawhorse, an old trunk, an old sink, and a pile of discarded lead piping. The wooden six by six supporting pillars of the basement, a framed dusty group photograph of Becky's high school graduating class, and I began to get panicky. Time was passing; I wasn't finding what I was certain was here somewhere, and what I had to find, if it wasn't already too late. I tried the old trunk; it was unlocked and I thrust my arm down into it to the shoulder, stirring around in the old clothes the trunk was filled with till I knew it contained nothing else. There was nothing among the stacks of old newspapers, or behind the screen door, nothing in the old bookcase I found, its shelves lined with empty, earth-crusted flowerpots. I saw a wooden workbench littered with tools and wood shavings, odds and ends of unused lengths of lumber stacked underneath it as quietly as possible. I pulled most of that lumber aside, but still I made a good deal of noise. There was nothing under the bench but lumber. I shot the little beam up to the rafters. They were open and exposed, covered with dust and fluff. There was nothing else on them. Time continued to pass, and I'd searched that whole basement. I didn't know where else to look and I kept glancing at the windows, afraid I might see the first hint of dawn. Then I discovered a set of tall cupboards. They were built against an end wall, extending the full width of the basement and covering it from floor to ceiling. In the weak beam of my flashlight, I thought at first that they were the wall itself and hadn't noticed them. I opened the first set of double doors, the shelves were loaded with canned goods, I opened the next set of doors beside them, and the shelves were dusty and empty, all but the bottom one, no more than an inch from the floor. There it lay, on that unpainted pine shelf, flat on its back, eyes wide open, arms motionless at its sides. I got down on my knees beside it. I think it must actually be possible to lose your mind in an instant, and that perhaps I came very close to it. And now I knew why Theodora Belichick lay on a bed in my house in a state of drugged shock, and I closed my eyes tight, fighting to hold on to control of myself. Then I opened them again and looked holding my mind by sheer force in a state of cold and artificial calm. I've watched a man develop a photograph a portrait he'd taken of a mutual friend. He dipped the sheet of blank, sensitized paper into the solution, slowly swishing it back and forth in the dim red light of the developing room. Then underneath that colorless fluid the image began to reveal itself dimly and vaguely, yet unmistakably recognizable just the same, this thing too lying on its back on that dusty shelf in the feeble orange glow of my flashlight was an unfinished, underdeveloped, vague, and indefinite Becky Driscoll. The hair, like Becky's, was brown and wavy, and it sprang up from the forehead, wiry and strong, and already there was the beginning of a dip at the center of the hairline, suggesting the widow's peak of Becky Driscoll's head of hair. Under the skin, the bone structure was pushing up, cheekbone and chin, and the modelling around the eyes was beginning to show prominently, as did Becky's. The nose was narrow, flaring into a sudden wideness at the bridge, and I saw that if it widened only a fraction of an inch more, this nose would be a duplicate, precise as a wax cast of Becky's. The lips formed very nearly the same full, ripe, and—this was horrible, good-looking mouth— At each side of that mouth were appearing the two tiny, nearly invisible grooves of worry that had appeared on Becky Driscoll's face in the past few years. It is impossible even in a child, for bone and flesh to grow perceptibly in anything less than weeks. Yet kneeling here now, the cold concrete pressing hard against my knees, I knew that the flesh I was staring at and the bone underneath had been reforming themselves in only the hours and minutes that had so far passed of this night. It was simply not possible. But still I knew that these cheekbones had pushed up under this skin, the mouth had widened, the lips swelled and taken on character, and the chin had lengthened the fraction of an inch, the jaw angle altered, and I knew that the hair had changed in color to this precise shade, thickened and strengthened, twisting into waves, and began to dip down onto the forehead. I hope I never again in my life see anything as frightful as those eyes. I could look at them for only a second at a time, then I had to close my own. They were almost, but not quite, not yet, as large as Becky's. They were not quite the same shape, or precisely the same shade, but getting there. The expression of those eyes, though watch an unconscious person come to, and at first the eyes show only the least dull beginnings of comprehension, the first faint flickers of returning intelligence. That is all that had yet happened to these eyes. The steady awareness, the quiet alertness of Becky Driscoll's eyes were horribly parodied and deluded here. Yet, washed out a dozen times over as they were, you could nevertheless see in these blank blue eyes caught in the trembling beam of my light the first faint hint of what given time would become Becky Driscoll's eyes. I moaned and bent double, clutching my stomach tight under my folded arms. There was a scar on the left forearm of the thing on the shelf just above the wrist. Becky had a small smooth burn mark there, and I remembered its shape because it crudely resembled an outline drawing of the South American continent. It was on this wrist, too, barely visible but there, and precisely the same in shape. There was a mole on the left hip and a pencil line white scar just below the right kneecap, and although I didn't know it of my own knowledge, I was certain that Becky, too, was marked in these very same ways. There, on that shelf, lay Becky Driscoll, uncompleted. There lay a preliminary sketch for what was to become a perfect and flawless portrait. Everything begun, all sketched in, nothing entirely finished. Or say it this way, there in that dim orange light lay a blurred face, seen vaguely as though through layers of water, and yet recognizable in every least feature. I jerked my head, tearing my eyes away, and sobbed for air. Unconsciously, I'd been holding my breath, and the sound was loud and harsh in that silent basement. Then I came to life once more, my heart swelling and contracting gigantically, the blood congesting in my veins and behind my eyes. In a panic of and excitement, I got to my feet, my legs stiff, so that I stumbled and I moved, fast, up the basement stairs and tried the first floor door. It was unlocked, and I stepped out into the kitchen. On, then, through the silent dining room, the straight-backed chairs around the table silhouetted against the windows. In the living room, I swung onto the white-railed staircase, turned at the landing, then climbed silently two stairs at a time to the upper hallway. There was a row of doors, all closed, and I had to guess... I tried the second, on a hunch, grasping the knob, squeezing my fist tight around it, then slowly twisting my wrist, making no sound. I could feel, not hear, the latch sliding out of its notch in the doorframe. Then I pushed the door open through fractions of inches and brought my head into the room, not moving my feet. A dark formless blur. A head lay on the single pillow of a double bed. There was no telling who it was. Aiming my light to one side of the face, I pressed the button and saw Becky's father. He moved, muttering an unintelligible word, and I released my flash button and... Fast, but still noiselessly, pulled the door closed, then gradually released my grip on the knob. This was too slow. I couldn't contain myself. I was ready to burst through the doors, cracking them back against walls, ready to shout at the top of my lungs and rouse the household. I took two quick steps to the next door, opened it wide, and strode in, my flashlight on, and moving rapidly down the wall of the room to find the face of the sleeper in it, it was Becky, lying motionless in that little circle of light, the face A stronger, more vigorous duplicate of the parody of a face I'd left in the basement. I moved around the bed in two strides and grasped Becky's shoulder, my other hand holding the light. I shook, and she moaned a little but didn't waken. Now I got my arm under her shoulder and lifted. Her upper body came up to a sitting position, the head hanging back over my arm, and she sighed deep in her throat. I didn't wait another second thrusting the little flash in my mouth, gripping it by the barrel in my teeth, I threw back the light blanket, got my other arm under her knees and lifted, then staggering a step I heaved Becky over one shoulder in a fireman's carry, one arm curving up, holding her in place, I took the flash in my other hand and staggered out into the hall. Then I walked, still staggering but on tiptoe. I simply don't know how much or little sound I made to the stairs, then down the stairway in the dark, sliding my feet, feeling for each step with my toes. Out the front door... Then I was walking down the dark, empty street, alternately carrying Becky over my shoulder, then holding her, her head hanging limp in my cradled arms. After a block, she moaned, then lifted her head, eyes still closed, and her arms came up and clasped behind my neck, then she opened her eyes. For a moment as I walked, looking down at her face, she stared at me, eyes drugged. Then she blinked several times, and her eyes cleared somewhat sleepily, like a child, she said. What? What, Miles? What is it? Tell you later, I said quietly and smiled at her. You're all right, I think. How do you feel? All right. Tired, though. God, I'm tired. She was turning her head as she spoke. "'looking around her at the darkened houses and the trees overhead. "'Miles, what's happening?' "'She looked up at me, smiling puzzledly. "'Are you kidnapping me? "'Carrying me off to your den or something?' "'She looked down and saw that under my unbuttoned coat I was wearing pajamas. "'Miles,' she muttered mockingly, "'couldn't you wait? Couldn't you at least ask me, like a gentleman?' Miles, what in the world are you doing? I grinned at her. I'll explain in a minute, when we get to my place. Her brows lifted at that, and my grin widened. Don't worry, you're perfectly safe. Manny Kaufman is there, and both the Belichicks. Becky looked at me for a moment, then shivered suddenly. The night air was cool, and her nightgown was nylon. She tightened her grip around my neck and snuggled close, closing her eyes. Too bad, she murmured, the biggest adventure of my life kidnapped from my bed by a good-looking man in pajamas carried through the streets like a captive cave woman, and then he has to supply chaperones. She opened her eyes and grinned up at me. My arms ached horribly. My back felt as though a huge dull knife were pressing hard across my spine, and I could hardly straighten my knees after each step. It was agony, and yet I didn't want it to end. Becky felt good in my arms, close against me, and I was very aware of the pattern of warmth wherever her body touched mine. Manny was at my place, I saw, his car was parked back of mine. On the porch I set Becky on her feet, wondering if I could possibly straighten up without shattering into pieces like a broken glass. Then I gave her my topcoat, as I should have long since. I just hadn't thought. She put it on and buttoned it, smiling. Then we walked in, and Manny and Jack were in the living room. They stared, mouths open, and Becky just smiled and greeted them, as though she were dropping in for tea. I acted equally casual, delighted at the looks on Jack's and Manny's faces, and suggested to Becky that it was a little cool for a nightgown. I told her where she could find a clean pair of blue jeans that had shrunk and were too small for me, a clean white shirt, wool socks, and a pair of loafers, and she nodded and went upstairs to find them. I turned into the living room toward an empty chair, glancing at Manny and Jack. "'It's just that I get lonesome sometimes,' I said and shrugged. "'And when that happens, I've simply got to have company.' Manny looked at me wearily. "'Same thing,' he said quietly, nodding toward the stairs Becky had just climbed. "'You find one at her place?' "'Yeah.' I nodded serious again. In the basement. Well, he stood up. I want to see them. One of them, anyway. At her place or Jack's. I nodded. Okay, better make it Jack's. Becky's dad is at her place. I'll get some clothes on. Upstairs, me in my bedroom, Becky in the bathroom, a step or two down the hall. We each got dressed, and calling quietly to each other, were able to talk. "'Putting on pants, shoes and socks, a shirt and my old blue sweater, "'I told her as briefly as possible what she had already guessed, "'what had happened at the Belichicks, "'and what I'd found in her basement, too, "'without going into details too much. "'I was afraid of how it might affect her, but she took it okay. "'Both dressed now, we walked out into the hall, "'and Becky smiled at me pleasantly. "'She looked fine.' The pants fitted pretty good, and with the white wool socks and loafers, her shirt sleeves rolled up and the collar opened. She looked like a girl in an ad for a vacation resort. Her eyes, I noticed now, were alive and eager, unafraid. And I realized that because she hadn't actually seen what I had seen, she was more pleased and delighted than anything else at all the excitement. "'We're going to Jack's,' I said. "'Do you want to come?' was ready to argue if she did, but she shook her head. No, someone has to stay with Theodora. You all go ahead. She turned, walked into the room where Theodora lay, and I went downstairs. We took my car, all of us in the front seat, and after a few blocks, Jack said, what do you think, Manny? But Manny just shook his head, staring absently at the dash. I don't know yet, he said. I just don't know. In the east, I noticed, though it was still black night in the car and the street around us, there was a hint of dawn or false dawn in the sky. We climbed the dirt road in low gear, rounded the last turn, and every single light in Jack's house, it seemed, was blazing. For an instant it scared me. I expected the house to be utterly dark, and I had a quick mental image of a half-alive, naked and staring figure stumbling vacant-mindedly through the house, clicking on light switches. Then I realized that Jack and Theodora wouldn't have bothered turning off the lights when they'd left, and I calmed down a little. I parked outside the open garage, and in just the time it had taken to drive up here from my house, the sky had definitely lightened. All around us now you could see the black outlines of trees against the whitening light we got out and in a little circle at my feet i could see the irregularities of ground and the first grade beginnings of color in the weeds and bushes the lights of the house were beginning to go weak and orange in the wan light of first dawn none of us speaking a word we walked single file into the garage Jack leading, the leather of our souls gritting on the cement floor. Then we were in the basement, the half-open door of the billiard room six or eight paces ahead. The light was on just as Theodora had left it, and now Jack was pushing the door open. He stopped, so suddenly that Manny bumped into him. Then he moved slowly forward again, and Manny and I filed in after him. There was no body on the table. Under the bright shadowless light from overhead lay the brilliant green felt, and on the felt, except at the corners and along the sides, lay a sort of thick gray fluff that might have fallen or been jarred loose, I supposed, from the open rafters. For an instant, his mouth hanging open, Jack stared at the table. Then he swung to Manny, His voice, protesting, asking for belief, he said, It was there, on the table. Manny, it was. Manny smiled, nodding quickly. I believe you, Jack, you all saw it. He shrugged. And now someone's taken it. There's a mystery here of some sort. Maybe. Come on, let's get outside. I think I've got something to tell you. Chapter 7 At the edge of the road in front of Jack's house, we sat down in the grass beside my car, our feet over the embankment, staring down at the town in the valley. I'd seen it like this more than once, coming through the hills from nighttime calls. The rooftops were still gray and colorless, but all over the town now, windows flashed a dull blind orange in the almost level rays of the rising sun. Even as we watched, the orange-colored windows were brightening, lightning in tone as the sun's rim moved, inching up over the eastern horizon. Here and there, from an occasional chimney, we could see a beginning straggle of smoke. Jack murmured, speaking to himself actually, shaking his head as he stared down at the toy houses below. It just won't bear thinking about, he said. How many of those things are down there in town right now, hidden away in secret places? Manny smiled. None, he said. None at all. And grinned as her head swung to stare at him. Listen, he said quietly. You've got a mystery on your hands. All right, and a real one. Whose body was that, and where is it now? We were seated at his left, and Manny turned his head to watch our faces for a moment. Then he added, But it's a completely normal mystery, a murder, possibly. I couldn't say. Whatever it is, though, it's well within the bounds of human experience. Don't try to make any more of it. My mouth opened to protest, but Manny shook his head. Now listen to me, he said quietly. His forearms on his knees, hands clasped. Manny sat staring down at the town. The human mind is a strange and wonderful thing, he said reflectively, but I'm not sure it will ever figure itself out. Everything else, maybe, from subatomic particles to the universe, except itself. His arm swung outward, gesturing at the miniature town below us, brightening in the first morning sun, Down there in Mill Valley a week or ten days ago, someone formed a delusion. A member of his family was not what he seemed, but an imposter. It's not a common delusion precisely, but it happens occasionally, and every psychiatrist encounters it sooner or later. Usually, he has some idea of how to treat it. Manny leaned back against the front wheel of my car and smiled at us. But last week, I was stumped. It's not a common delusion, yet from this one town alone there were a dozen or more such cases, all occurring within the past week or so. I'd never encountered such a thing in all my practice before, and it had me stopped cold. Manny moved a hand absently over the stubble of his dark tan face. But I've been doing some reading lately, refreshing my mind on certain things I should have remembered before. Did you ever hear of the Mattoon maniac? We just shook our heads and waited. Well, Manny clasped one knee between his interlocked fingers. Mattoon is a town in Illinois of maybe 20,000 people, and something happened there that you can find described in textbooks on psychology. On September 2nd, 1944, in the middle of the night, a woman phoned the police. Someone had tried to kill her neighbor with poison gas. This neighbor, a woman, had awakened around midnight. Her husband was at work on the night shift of a factory. The woman's room was filled with a peculiar, sweet-smelling, sickening odor. She tried to get up, but her legs were paralyzed. She managed to crawl to the phone and call her neighbor. Who notified the police. The police arrived and did what they could. They found a door unlocked by which someone could have entered, but of course there was no one else around the house anymore. A night or so later, the police got another call and again found a partly paralyzed, very sick woman. Someone had tried to kill her with poison gas. That same night, the same thing happened again in another part of town, and when a dozen or more women were attacked in the same way on following nights, each sick and partly paralyzed from a sickly smelling gas pumped into their rooms while they slept, the police knew they had a psychopath to find, a maniac, as the newspapers were calling him. Manny plucked a weed and began stripping the leaves from the stem. One night, a woman saw the man. She awoke to see him silhouetted against her open bedroom window, and he was pumping something like an insecticide spray into her room. She got a whiff of the gas, screamed, and the man ran. But as he turned from the window, she got a good look at him. He was tall, quite thin, and was wearing what looked like a black skull cap. Now the state police were called in because in only a single night, seven more women were gassed and partly paralyzed. Reporters were in town, too, from the press services and most of the Chicago newspapers. You can find accounts of all this in their files. At night now in Mattoon, Illinois, in 1944, cars filled with men carrying shotguns patrolled the streets, neighbors organized into squads patrolling their own blocks and shifts and the attacks continued, and the maniac wasn't found. Finally, one night, there were eight state police cars in town and a mobile radio unit. A doctor prepared and waiting was at the local Methodist hospital. That night, the police got a call. As usual, a woman, hardly able to speak, had been gassed by the madman. In less than a minute, one of the roving police cars was at her house. She was rushed to the hospital and examined by the doctor. Manny smiled. He found absolutely nothing wrong with her. Nothing. She was sent home. Another call came in, and the second woman was rushed to the hospital, examined, and again, there was nothing wrong with her. All night long that happened. The calls came in. The women were examined at the hospital within minutes, and every single one of them was sent back home. For a long moment, Manny studied our faces. Then he said, The cases that night were the last that ever happened in Mattoon. The epidemic was over. There was no maniac. There never had been one. He shook his head in puzzlement. Mass hysteria, auto-suggestion, whatever you want to call it. That's what happened to Mattoon. Why? How? Manny shrugged. I don't know. We give it names, but we don't really understand it. All we know for sure is that these things actually happen. I think Manny saw in my face and Jack's a sort of stubborn unwillingness to accept the implications of what he was saying, because he turned to me and voice patient, said, Miles, you must have read in med school about the dancing sickness that spread over Europe a couple hundred years ago. He looked at Jack. An astounding thing, he said, impossible to believe, except that it happened. Whole towns began to dance, first one person, then another, then every man, woman, and child in it, till they fell dead or exhausted. The thing swept all Europe, the dancing sickness. You can read about it in your encyclopedia. It lasted an entire summer, as I recall, and then it stopped, died out, leaving people, I suppose, wondering what in the world had happened to them. Manny paused, watching us, then shrugged. So there you are. These things are hard to believe till you see them, and even when you do see them. And that's what happened in Mill Valley, he nodded at the town at our feet. The news spreads. Semi-secretly at first. It's whispered around, as it was in Mattoon. Someone believes her husband, sister, aunt, or uncle is actually an undetectable imposter. A strange and exciting bit of news to hear. And then it keeps on happening. And it spreads. And there's a new case, or several, nearly every day. Hell, the Salem witch hunt, UFOs, they're all part of this same amazing aspect of the human mind. People live lonely lives, a lot of them. These delusions bring attention and concern. But Jack was slowly shaking his head no, and Manny said quietly, "'The body was real. "'That's what's bothering you, isn't it, Jack?' Jack nodded, and Manny said, "'Yes, it was. You all saw it, but that's all that's real.' Jack, if you'd found that body a month ago, you'd have recognized it for what it was, a puzzling, possibly very strange mystery, but a perfectly natural one, too. And so would Theodora, Becky, and Miles. You can see what I mean. Leaning across me, he was staring at Jack intently. Suppose that in August 1944, in Mattoon, Illinois, a man had walked through the streets at night carrying a spray gun. Anyone seeing him would have supposed and correctly, that the man was going to spray his rose bushes next day, or something of that sort. But one month later in September, that man with the spray gun might have had his head blown off before he ever had a chance to explain. Gently, Manny said, and you, Jack, you found a body of approximately your height and build, which isn't too strange. You're an average-sized man, the face in death and this happens often, was smooth and unlined, bland in expression, and... Manny shrugged. Well, you're a writer, an imaginative man, and you're under the influence of the delusion that's loose in Mill Valley, and so are Miles, Theodora, and Becky, me too, undoubtedly, if I lived here. And your mind leaped for a connection, Leap to a conclusion explaining two mysteries in terms of each other. The human mind searches for cause and effect always, and we all prefer the weird and thrilling to the dull and commonplace as an answer. Listen, Manny. Theodora actually saw exactly what she expected to see, what she was frightened to death of seeing, what she was. "'Absolutely certain to see under the circumstances. "'I'd really be astonished if she hadn't. "'Why, you two had her, and she had herself, "'completely conditioned and ready for it.' "'I started to speak, and Manny grinned at me mockingly. "'You saw nothing, Miles.' "'He shrugged, except a rolled-up rug, "'maybe on a shelf in Becky's basement, "'or a pile of sheets or laundry.' Almost anything at all, or nothing at all, would do. You had yourself so worked up by that mile, so hyper excited running through the streets, that as you say yourself, you were certain you were going to find what of course you did find. It was a lead pipe cinch that you would. He held up a hand as I started to speak. Oh, you saw it all right, in every tiny detail, exactly as you described it. You saw it as vividly and absolutely real as anyone has ever seen anything. But you saw it only in your mind. Manny frowned at me. Hell, you're a doctor, Miles. You know something about how this sort of thing works. He was right. I did. In pre-med college, I once sat in a classroom listening to a psychology professor quietly lecturing, and now, sitting there on the edge of the road, the sun warming against my face, I was remembering how the door of that classroom had suddenly burst open as two struggling men stumbled into the room. One man broke loose, yanked a banana from his pocket, pointed it at the other, and yelled, BANG! The other clutched his side, pulled a small American flag from his pocket, waved it violently in the other man's face. Then they both rushed out of the room. The professor said, this is a controlled experiment. You will each take paper and pencil, write down a complete account of what you just saw and place it on my desk as you leave the room. Next day in class, he read our papers aloud. There were some 20 odd students, and no two accounts were alike or even close. Some students saw three men, some four, one girl saw five. Some saw white men, some blacks, some Orientals, some saw women. One student saw a man stabbed saw the blood spurt, saw him hold a handkerchief to his side, which quickly became blood-soaked, and could hardly believe it when he found no bloodstains on the floor as he left his paper at the professor's desk. And so on and so on. Not a single paper mentioned the American flag or the banana. Those objects didn't fit into the sudden, violent little scene that had burst on our senses, so our minds excluded them, simply ruled them out and substituted other more appropriate things such as guns, knives, and blood-soaked rags that we were each of us absolutely certain we'd seen. We had seen them, in fact, but only in our minds, hunting for some explanation. So now I wondered if Manny weren't right. And it was strange. I felt a sense of disappointment, a real letdown at the thought, and realized that I was trying to resist believing him. We do prefer the weird and thrilling, as Manny had said, to the dull and commonplace. Even though I could still see in my mind, vivid and horribly real, what I'd thought I'd seen in Becky's basement. I felt, intellectually, that Manny was probably right. But emotionally, it was still very nearly impossible to accept. And I guess it showed in my face and in Jack's. Because Manny got to his feet and stood there for several seconds looking down at us. Then he said softly, You want proof? I'll give it to you. Miles, go back to Becky's house, and in a calm state of mind, you'll see nobody on that shelf in her basement. I guarantee that. There was only one body in Jack's basement, the one that started all this. You want more proof? I'll give it to you. This delusion will die down in Mill Valley just as it did in Mattoon, just as it did in Europe, just as all of them always do. And the people who came to you, Miles, Wilma Lentz and the others will come back, some of them anyway. Others will avoid you out of simple embarrassment. But if you hunt them up, they'll admit what the others tell you, that the delusion is gone, that they simply don't understand how or why it ever entered their heads. And that'll be the end of it. There'll be no more cases. I guarantee that, too. Manny grinned then, glanced around him at the sky, blue and clear now, and said, "'I could use some breakfast.' "'Jack smiled up at him getting to his feet, and so did I. "'Me too,' I answered. "'Come on back to my place. "'Let's see what the ladies can find us to eat.' "'Jack went through his house, then turning off lights, "'closing and locking doors. "'When he came out, he had a brown cardboard folder under his arm, "'the accordion type, divided into sections, "'every one of them crammed to bulging with papers.' My office, he said, nodding down at the folder. Work in progress. Notes, references, junk, very valuable stuff. He grinned, and I like to keep it with me. Then we all drove back down the hill to town. At Becky's house, I stopped at the curb and got out, leaving the motor running. It was still very early, the street white with new daylight, and I didn't see a soul or movement in the entire block. I walked boldly around to the side of the house, but on the grass, my feet making no sound. At the broken basement window, I stood glancing up at the neighbor's windows. I didn't see anyone or hear a sound. I stooped quickly, crawled in through the window, then walked across the concrete floor on tiptoes. The basement was light now and very silent, and I was calm but worried. I didn't want to be caught down there and have to explain what I was doing cupboard door I'd opened stood half ajar as I'd left it, and now I opened it wide and lowered my eyes to the bottom shelf. The light from a nearby basement window struck it full, and the shelf was empty. I opened every door in that wall of shelves, and there was nothing that didn't belong there—only canned goods, tools, empty fruit jars, old newspapers. On the empty bottom shelf lay a thick mass of gray fluff, and, squatting beside it, I shrugged. It was the kind of dust and dirt, I could only suppose, that accumulates in basements, and which my senses had distorted in a kind of hysterical explosion into a body. I didn't want to stay a moment longer than I had to, and I closed the cupboard as I'd found it crossed to the window, and crawled out onto the side lawn again. What Becky's father would think of this broken window when he found it, I didn't know, but I knew I wasn't going to explain it. In the car, drawing away from the curb, I nodded at Manny, grinning a little sheepishly. You were right, I said. And I glanced at Jack and shrugged. Chapter 8 The human animal won't take a straight diet of any emotion. Fear, happiness, horror, grief, or even contentment. It was queer. After the night we'd all spent, breakfast was fun. The sun helped. It streamed in through the open windows and the kitchen door, yellow and warm and full of morning promise. Theodora was up when we got there, sitting at the kitchen table, drinking coffee with Becky. She stood up as we came in, Jack hurrying toward her, and they held each other tight for a long moment, Jack kissing her hard. He drew back to look at her then, and Manny and I looked too. She was still tired. There were circles under her eyes. But the eyes were calm and sane now, and she smiled at us over Jack's shoulder. Then, almost as though a signal had been given, we all began chattering Laughing a lot, making jokes, and the two women began turning on gas jets, getting out skillets and pans, opening cupboards and the refrigerator, while we three men sat down at the kitchen table. Becky poured us each some coffee. By a sort of unspoken consent, we didn't talk about the night before, not seriously, anyway, or about what Jack, Manny, and I had just been doing. And the women asked no questions. They must have felt from our manner that things were all right. Sausage began sputtering on the stove, Theodora turning it with a fork, and Becky began beating up eggs in a bowl, the metal spoon tapping rhythmically against the china. A nice sound. Theodora said, eyes laughing, "'I've been thinking it over, and I could use a duplicate of Jack.' One of them could moon around the house, as usual, not hearing a word I say, working out whatever he's writing in his mind. And maybe the other would have time to talk to me, and even help with the dishes once in a while. Jack smiled at her over the rim of his cup, his eyes happy and relieved to see her this way. Mm, it might be worth trying, he said. At times, I think any change in me would be an improvement. Maybe the new one would actually know how to write, instead of beating his head against a stone wall, just trying. Becky was nodding. There are advantages, all right, she said. I like the idea of one me secretly carried through the streets in her nightgown, while the other one is still home, properly alone in her bed, satisfying all the proprieties. We rang the changes on that idea. Manny wanted one Dr. Kaufman listening to his patients while the other was out playing tennis, and I said I could use a duplicate Miles Benel to catch up on sleep. The food tasted wonderful, and we ate and chattered all through breakfast, making what jokes there were to be made. Actually, I think we were a little too lively, almost high in in reaction against what had happened. Presently, Manny touched his mouth with his napkin, glanced at the wall clock, and stood up. By the time he got home, he said, and shaved, changed clothes, and got to his office, he'd just have time to keep his first appointment. He said his goodbyes, told me he planned to send me an enormous bill, charging his usual hourly rates, if not double, grinned, and I saw him to the front door. Then the rest of us all had second or third cups of coffee. While I sipped mine... I sat back in my chair and told Theodora and Becky briefly and factually what had happened, what we'd found, or rather hadn't found, in Jack's and Becky's basements, and what Manny had told us there on the road in front of Jack's house. I expected what happened when I finished. Theodora simply shook her head, her lips compressed in quiet stubbornness, It just wasn't possible for her to believe that she hadn't seen what she was certain she had seen and could still see in her mind's eye. Becky didn't comment, but I could see from the relief in her eyes that she'd accepted Manny's explanation, and I knew she was thinking of her father. She looked very good sitting there at the table beside me, very fresh and alive and good-looking, and it was exciting to see her wearing my shirt open at the collar. Jack got up, walked to the living room and came back with the cardboard folder he'd brought from his house. Smiling, he sat down, saying, I'm kind of a squirrel, and began peering into each section of the accordion folder, a collector of various things without quite knowing why. And one of the things I save, he reached into one section of his folder and brought out a great handful of newspaper clippings. Are certain newspaper items. I brought them along after we talked to Manny. Pushing aside the plates before him, he put the clippings on the table, a mound of dozens of them, some yellowing a little with age, some new-looking, most of them short, a few of them long. Picking one from the pile at random, he glanced at the heading, then passed it over to me. I held it so Becky could read, too. "'Frogs fell on Alabama,' the heading said. It was a little one-column story, a couple inches long, date-lined, Edgeville, Alabama.' Any fisherman in this town of 4,000, it began, had plenty of bait this morning if there was only a place in this area to use it. Last night, a shower of tiny frogs of undetermined origin... The little story, I skimmed through the rest of it, went on to say that a shower of small frogs had fallen on the town, pelting the roofs and windows like rain for several minutes the previous night. The tone of the story was mildly humorous, and no explanation of the shower was given. I looked up at Jack, and he smiled. Silly, isn't it, he said, especially since, as the story itself suggests, there was no place the frogs could have come from. He picked up another clipping and handed it to me. Man burned to death, clothes unharmed, this was headed. And it said that a man had been found burned to a cinder in an Idaho farmhouse. The clothes he wore, however, weren't burned or even singed, and there wasn't a sign of fire damage or even smoke smudges in the house. The local coroner was quoted as saying it would take heat of at least 2,000 degrees to burn a man as this one had been found. That's all the story said. I half smiled, half frowned at Jack, wondering what this was all about. Theodora was looking at him over the rim of her coffee cup with the wryly amused look of affectionate scorn wives have for their husbands' eccentricities, and Jack grinned at us. I've got a couple dozen like that from all over. People burned to death inside their clothes. Ever read such nonsense in your life? Ah, here's another kind. Written in pencil on the margin of this one was... New York Post, and the printed heading said, and there was his ambulance. The dateline was Richmond, California, May 7th, AP. The clipping read, Hurry to San Pablo and McDonald Avenue, said the telephone voice. The Santa Fe streamliner just hit a truck and a man is hurt pretty badly. Police dispatched a squad car and ambulance to the address. There was no accident. The train hadn't yet reached the scene. It did, though, just as the investigators were leaving and just as a delivery truck driven by Randolph Bruce, 44, was on the crossing. Bruce is hurt pretty badly. He has a brain injury and a crushed chest. I laid down the clipping. What's your point, Jack? Well, he got slowly to his feet. There are a couple hundred queer little happenings that I've collected in just a few years, and you could find thousands more, he began slowly pacing the kitchen floor. I think they prove at least this, that strange things happen, really do happen every now and then, here and there throughout the world, things that simply don't fit in with the great body of knowledge that the human race has gradually acquired over thousands of years things in direct contradiction to what we know to be true. Something falls up instead of down. Reaching out to the toaster on the drainboard of the sink, Jack touched a fingertip to a crumb and lifted it to his tongue. So this is my point, Miles. Should they always be explained away? Or laughed away? Or simply ignored? Because that's what always happens. He resumed his slow pacing about the big old kitchen, I guess it's only natural. I suppose nothing can be given a place in our body of accepted knowledge except what is universally experienced. Science claims to be objective, though. He stopped, facing the table. To consider all phenomena impartially and without prejudice. But of course it does no such thing. This kind of occurrence, he nodded at the little mound of paper on the table, it dismisses with automatic habitual contempt, from which the rest of us take our cue. "'What are these things?' say the scientific attitude. "'Why, they're only optical illusions, or self-suggestion, or hysteria, or mass hypnosis, "'or, when everything else fails, coincidence. "'Anything and everything, except that possibly they really happened.' "'Oh, no!' Jack shook his head, smiling. "'You must never admit for a moment that anything we don't understand may nevertheless have occurred.' As I believe most wives, even the wisest, do with any real conviction held by their husbands, Theodora accepted this and made it her own. Well, it's stupid, she said, and how the human race ever learns anything new, I really don't know. It takes a long time, Jack agreed, hundreds of years to accept the fact that the world is round, a century resisting the knowledge that the earth revolves around the sun. We hate facing new facts or evidence because we might have to revise our conceptions of what's possible, and that's always uncomfortable. Jack grinned and sat down at the table again. I should talk, though. Take any of these. He picked up a clipping. This one from the New York Post, for example. Now, that isn't fiction. The New York Post is a real newspaper, and this little story was actually printed in the Post and no doubt in a lot of other papers all over the country. Thousands read it, including me. But did we rise up insisting that our body of knowledge be revised to include this strange little occurrence? Did I? No. We wondered about it, were intrigued and interested momentarily, then dismissed it from mind. And now, like all the other odd little happenings that don't quite fit in with what we think we know, it's forgotten and ignored by the world, except for a few curiosa collectors like me. Maybe it should be, I said quietly. Take a look at this. I'd been idly glancing through his clippings as Jack talked, and now I pushed one toward him. It was just a squib from the Mill Valley record, and it didn't say much. One L. Bernard Budlong, botany and biology professor at Marin College was quoted as denying a comment the paper had attributed to him the day before about some mysterious objects found on some pasture land outside of town. They were described as large seed pods of some sort or other, and now Budlong was denying having said they'd come from outer space. The record apologized. Sorry, prof. The story ended. "'What about that, Jack?' I said gently. "'The collapse of one of your little items, "'a one-inch retraction buried in the paper a day or so later, "'makes you wonder.' "'I nodded at his mound of clippings. "'About all the rest, doesn't it?' "'Sure,' Jack said. "'That retraction belongs in the collection, too, "'and that's why it's there. I didn't exclude it.' "'He picked up a handful of clippings "'and let them flutter down onto the table again. "'Miles... These are lies, most of them, for all I know. Some are most certainly hoaxes, and maybe most of the rest are distortions, exaggerations, or simple errors of judgment or vision. I have sense enough to know that, but damn it, Miles, not all of them, past, present, and future. You can't explain them all away, perpetually and forever. For a moment he sat glaring at me, then he smiled. So, is Manny right? Should what happened last night be explained away, too? Jack shrugged. Maybe it should. Manny makes good sense. He always does. And he's explained what happened almost satisfactorily. Maybe 99%. For a moment, Jack stared at us, then lowered his voice and said very softly, But there's a tiny 1% of doubt still left in my mind. I was looking at Jack, and feeling an actual, unpleasant, sluggish prickling along my spine at the simple thought that had just occurred to me. The fingerprints, I murmured, and Jack frowned momentarily. The blank fingerprints, I shouted then. Manny thinks it's just an ordinary body, since when do ordinary men have no fingerprints at all? Theodora was pushing herself up from her chair, arms straining against the tabletop, and her voice came out high and shrill. I can't go back there, Jack. I can't set foot in that house. Her voice, as Jack stumbled to his feet, rose still higher. I know what I saw. It was turning into you, Jack. It was. And as he took her into his arms, the tears were tumbling down her cheeks, and the fear stood in her eyes again. After a moment... I was able to speak quietly. Then don't go, I said to Theodora. Stay right here. They both turned to look at me, and I said, You've got to, both of you. I smiled a little. It's a big house. Pick out a room and stay. Bring your typewriter down, Jack, and work. I'd love to have you. I rattle around in this house, and I could use some company. Jack studied my face for a moment. You sure? Absolutely. He looked down at Theodora, and she nodded dumbly, pleadingly. All right, Jack said to me then. Maybe we'd better, for a day or so. Thanks, Miles. Thanks a lot. You too, Becky, I said then. You've got to stay too, for a few days anyway, with Theodora and Jack, something made me add. Her face was pale, but she grinned a little at that. With Theodora and Jack, she repeated. And where'll you be? My face flushed, but I smiled. Right here, I agreed. But you can ignore me. Theodora looked up from Jack's shoulder, and now she was able to smile, too. It might be fun, Becky, she said. Becky's eyes were dancing. It might at that. A sort of house party that goes on for days. Then the fear came into her eyes again. "'I was just thinking of my dad, is all,' she said to me. "'Phone him,' I said, "'and just tell him the truth, "'that something has upset Theodora pretty badly. "'She's going to stay here, and she needs you. "'That's all you have to say,' I grinned. "'Though you might add that I have some plans in mind "'that you can't resist.' "'I glanced at the wall clock. "'I've got to get to work, kids. "'The place is yours.' "'Then I went upstairs to get ready for the office.' I was more irritated than scared standing at my bathroom mirror shaving. A part of my mind was frightened at the fact we'd just faced downstairs, that the body in Jack's basement, incredibly, impossibly, and undeniably, had had no fingerprints. We hadn't imagined that, I knew, and it was a fact Manny's explanation couldn't cover. But mostly leaning toward the mirror, scraping my face, I was annoyed, I didn't want to becky driscoll living here in my house where i'd see her more every day than i ordinarily would in a week she was too attractive likable and good-looking i talked to myself when i shave you handsome bastard i said to my face you can marry them all right you just can't stay married that's your trouble you're weak emotionally unstable, basically insecure, a latent thumbsucker, a cesspool of immaturity, unfit for adult responsibility. I smiled and tried to think of some more. You are undoubtedly a quack hand, a Don Juan personality, a pseudo... I cut it out and finished shaving with the uncomfortable feeling that for all I knew it wasn't funny, but true that having failed with one woman, I was getting too involved with another, and that for my sake and hers, she should be anywhere but here under my roof. Jack rode downtown with me to talk to Nick Grivett, the local police chief. We both knew him well. Jack had, after all, found a dead body, and it had disappeared. He had to report that but we decided on the way down in my car that he'd report just those bare facts, nothing more. We couldn't explain his delay in reporting, so we decided he'd alter the time sequence a little and say he found the body last night instead of the morning before. It might just as well have happened that way. Even at that, there'd be a little delay to account for. Why hadn't he phoned the police last night then? We decided Jack would explain that Theodora was upset and hysterical. He couldn't think of anything else till she was taken care of and had rushed her to a doctor, me. She'd had a bad shock, so they were staying at my place. And Jack had gone home to pick up some clothes before phoning the police, and then he discovered the body was gone. We figured Grivet would ball him out a little, but there wasn't much else he could do. Smiling, I told Jack to act as dopey and absent-minded as he could, and Grivet would put it all down to his being an impractical literary type. Jack nodded and smiled a little at that. Then his face went serious again. Forget the fingerprints, too, you think, when I talk to Grivet? I shrugged and grimaced. You'll have to. Grivet would have you committed if you mentioned that. We pulled up at the police station. Jack got out. And I grinned and waved then, and drove on. Chapter 9 But I was in a bad mood when I parked my car, on a side street near my office, just out of the parking meter zone. Worry, doubt, and fear were twisting through my mind as I walked the block and a half to the office. And the look of Throckmorton Street depressed me. It seemed littered and shabby in the morning sun. A city trash basket stood heaped and unemptied from the day before. The globe of an overhead streetlight was broken, and a few doors from the building where my office was, a shop stood empty. The windows were whitened, and a clumsily painted For Rent sign stood leaning against the glass. It didn't say where to apply, though, and I had the feeling no one cared whether the store was ever rented again. A smashed wine bottle lay in the entranceway of my building, and the brass nameplate set in the grey stone of the building was mottled and unpolished, all up and down the street as I stopped for a moment to look. Not a soul was out washing down a store window as the shop owners usually were of a morning, and the street seemed oddly deserted. It was simply the mood I was in, I told myself. I was looking at the world in fear and worry, and I reprimanded myself. It's no way to let yourself feel when you're diagnosing and treating patients. A patient was waiting when I got upstairs. She had no appointment, but I was a little early, so I worked her in. She was Mrs. Seeley, the quiet little woman of 40 who had sat in this same chair a week before telling me that her husband wasn't her husband at all. Now she was smiling, actually squirming with relief and pleasure as she told me her delusion was gone. She'd talked to Dr. Kaufman last week, as I'd suggested, she told me, he hadn't seemed to help her much.' But last evening, unexplainedly, she'd come to her senses. I was sitting in the living room reading, she said eagerly, clasping her hands nervously on her purse, when suddenly I looked up at Al across the room. He was watching television. She shook her head in happy bewilderment. And I knew it was him, really him. I mean, Al, my husband. Dr. Bennell. she stared at me wonderingly across the desk, I just don't know what happened last week. I really don't know, and I feel so foolish. Of course, she sat back in her chair, I had heard of another case like mine. A lady in my club told me about it and said there had been several such cases in town, and Dr. Kaufman explained to me that hearing about those cases, when she told me finally what Dr. Kaufman had said and what she had said, And I'd listened and nodded and smiled. I got her out of the office, still talking in a fairly reasonable time. She'd have stayed all afternoon, bubbling over if I'd let her. My nurse had come in while Mrs. Seeley was talking and brought in my appointment list. I glanced down it now, and sure enough, there was the name of one of the three mothers of high school girls who had called on me so frantically the week before. She was down for 3.30, and later that afternoon, when my nurse ushered her in, she was smiling, and before she even sat down, began telling me what I knew I'd hear. The girls were all right and fonder than ever of their English instructor. The teacher had accepted their apologies gracefully, showing some understanding of what had happened, and she'd made the sensible suggestion that the girls simply explained to their schoolmates that it had been a joke. A schoolgirl hoax. They'd done this, and successfully. Their friends, the mother in my office assured me, actually admired the girl's skill as pranksters, and now she, the mother, wasn't worried a bit. Dr. Kaufman had explained to her how easily such a delusion can affect a person, particularly adolescent girls. The moment the happy mother had left, I picked up my phone, called Wilma Lentz at her shop, and when she answered, I asked her casually how she was feeling these days. There was a pause before she replied. Then she said, "'I've been meaning to stop in and see you about what happened.' (laughs) She laughed." not very successfully, then said, Manny helped me, all right. Miles, just the way you said, the delusion, or whatever it was, is gone. And, Miles, I've been so embarrassed. I don't quite know what happened, or how in the world to explain to you, but I interrupted to tell her I understood what had happened, that she wasn't to worry or feel badly, but to just forget it, and that I'd be seeing her. I sat there for maybe a full minute after I hung up, my hands still on the phone, trying to think coolly and sensibly. Everything Banny had predicted had come true. And the temptation to believe was very strong. If he was right about all that had happened, I could simply let the fear in my mind fade away now. And Becky could go home tonight. Almost angrily, I asked myself this, was I going to let nothing more than the absence of fingerprints on that body in Jack's basement keep all my problems and fears alive and unresolved? A picture rose up in my mind and existed for a moment, sharp and clear. Once more, I could see those smudged fingerprints horribly, impossibly, yet undeniably smooth as a baby's cheek. Then the clarity of that mental image broke and faded, and I told myself irritably that there were a dozen perfectly possible and natural explanations if I wanted to bother taking the trouble to think of them. I said it aloud. Manny is right. Manny's explained. Manny, 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 I thought to myself suddenly. That's all I seem to be hearing and thinking lately. He'd explained our delusion last night, and now this morning every patient I talked to seemed to mention his name ecstatically and gratefully. He'd solved everything in no time, and single-handed? For a moment I thought of the Manny Kaufman I'd always known, and it seemed to me he'd always been more cautious, slow to form final opinions. Then the notion roared up in my mind full-blown. This wasn't the Manny I'd always known. It wasn't Manny at all, but only looked, talked, and acted like I actually shook my head to clear it when I smiled a little ruefully. This in itself was more proof of how right he had been. Fingerprints or not, proof of just what he'd explained. The incredible strength of the weird delusion that swept Mill Valley. I lifted my hand from the telephone on my desk. The late afternoon fall sunlight was slanting in through my office windows, and from the street below I heard all the little sounds of a normal world moving through its daily routine. And now what had happened last night lost its strength in the routine activity and bright sunlight all around me. Mentally tipping my hat to Manny Kaufman, eminent shrink, I told myself, insisted to myself that he was exactly what he'd always been, an extremely intelligent, perceptive guy. He was right. We'd acted foolishly and hysterically. There wasn't a sensible reason why Becky Driscoll shouldn't be back home where she belonged tonight in her own house and bed. I pulled into my driveway around eight that evening after my hospital calls, and I saw that they'd waited supper for me. It was still light, and Theodora and Becky were out on the porch wearing aprons they'd found in the house somewhere, and setting out supper on the wide wooden porch rails. They waved at me, smiling, and upstairs from an open window as I slammed the car door, I could hear Jack's typewriter. And the house seemed alive once again with people I liked, and I felt wonderful. Jack came down, and we had supper on the porch. It had been a clear, blue-sky day, pretty warm for the time of year, but now, no longer full daylight, it was just exactly right. There was a tiny, very balmy breeze, and you could hear the leaves of the big old trees that lined the street, stirring and sighing with pleasure. The birds chirped, and from down the block you could hear the far-off rackety clatter of a lawnmower, one of the best sounds there is. We sat there on the wide old porch in the comfortably battered wicker furniture. Or the porch swing, eating bacon and tomato sandwiches on toast, sipping coffee, talking about nothing much with frequent easy silences. And I knew this was one of those occasional wonderful moments you remember always. Becky had gone home and gotten some clothes, apparently. She was wearing one of those smart, cool-looking thin dresses that turn good-looking women into beautiful ones, and I smiled at her. She was sitting near me on the swing. Would you care to come upstairs, I said politely, and be seduced? Love to, she murmured, took a sip of her coffee, but I'm too hungry just now. So sweet, Theodora said. Jack, why didn't you say nice things like that when you were courting me? I didn't dare, he said, and took a bite of a sandwich, or you'd have trapped me into marriage. I felt my face flush at that, but it was dark enough so I was sure no one had noticed. I could have told them now what had happened today at my office, but if I had, Becky might have wanted to go home right away, and I told myself I at least deserved a date for the evening. There was no danger in that, since I'd be taking her home soon. Presently Theodora finished and stood up. I'm dead, she said, exhausted, and I'm going to bed. She looked down at Jack. How about you, Jack? I think you should, she added firmly. He glanced up at her, then nodded. Yeah, he said, I guess I ought to. He swallowed the last of his coffee, tossed the dregs on the lawn, and got up from the porch rail. See you in the morning, he said to Becky and me. Night. I didn't say anything to stop them. "'Becky and I replied good night "'and watched the Belichicks walk on into the house, "'then heard them walking toward the stairs, talking quietly. "'I wasn't sure whether Theodora was actually tired "'or just up to a little matchmaking. "'It seemed to me she'd urged Jack to leave just a little pointedly. "'But whichever it was, I didn't care. "'And what I had to tell them could wait till morning, "'because I was a little tired at the moment of being a monk.' ...and I told myself that I'd earned a little time alone with Becky... ...that I'd tell her after a while what had happened today at my office. I heard footsteps reach the top landing. Then I turned to Becky. Would you mind moving and sit at my left instead of my right? No, she stood up, smiling puzzledly. But why? She sat down on the swing again at my left. I leaned across her for a moment to set my cup on the porch rail... Because, I smiled at her, I kiss left-handed, if you know what I mean. No, I don't, she smiled back. Well, a woman at my right, I demonstrated, curving my arm around empty space at my right side, is uncomfortable for me. It just doesn't feel right somehow. It's something like trying to write with the wrong hand. I just don't kiss well, except to my left. I lifted an arm to the back of the swing then, touching her shoulders, and Becky smiled a little and turned toward me. Then I held her to me, bending toward her a little, shifting my position a bit, getting my arms around her just right till we were both comfortable. I wanted this kiss very much. My heart was suddenly banging away, and I could feel the tightness of my blood in my temples. I kissed Becky then slowly very gently taking my time then harder tightening my arms around her bending her backward and suddenly it was more than pleasant it was a silent explosion in my mind and through every nerve and vein in my body i felt her lips soft and strong felt my hands pressed hard on her back and side and the terrible thrill of her body against me. My head yanked back. I couldn't breathe. Then I was kissing her again, and suddenly, instantly, I didn't care what happened. I'd never in my life experienced anything like this, and my hand dropped down tight on her thigh, and I knew I was going to take this woman upstairs with me if I could. Miles! I heard the sound, a man's harsh whisper coming from I didn't know where. I couldn't seem to think. Miles! It came louder, and I was looking stupidly around the porch. Over here, Miles, quick! It was Jack, standing just inside the closed screen door, and now I saw him beckoning. It was Theodora. I knew it. Something had happened to her, and I was hurrying, crossing the porch, then following Jack across the living room toward the staircase. But Jack was walking on past the stairs into the hallway. Then he was opening the basement door, and as he snapped on the flashlight in his hand, I walked down the stairs after him. We crossed the basement, the leather of our soles gritting the hard dust on the floor. Then Jack twisted the wood latch of the old coal bin door. The bin was in the corner of the basement, walled off from the rest of the room by ceiling-high planking, and it stood empty and unused now, washed out and hosed down since my father had installed gas heat long ago. Jack opened the door and the beam of his flashlight moved across the floor, then steadied an oval of light on the floor. I couldn't get clear in my mind what I was seeing. Lying there on the concrete, staring, I had to describe to myself a bit at a time just what I was looking at, trying to puzzle out what it was. There lay, I finally decided, what looked like four giant seed pods. They had been round in shape, maybe three feet in diameter, and now they had burst open in places, and from the inside of the great pods, a grayish substance, a heavy fluff in appearance, had partly spilled out onto the floor. That was a part of what I saw, my mind still busy trying to sort out impressions. In a way, at a glance, these giant pods reminded me of tumbleweed, those puff balls of dry-tangled vegetable matter, light as air, designed by nature to roll with the wind across the desert. But these pods were enclosed. I saw that their surfaces were made up of a network of tough-looking yellowish fibers, and stretching between these fibers to completely enclose these pod-like balls were great patches of brownish, dry-looking membrane, resembling a dead oak leaf in color and texture.' Seed pods, Jack said softly, his voice astonished. Miles, the seed pods in the clipping. I just stared at him. The clipping you showed me this morning, he said impatiently, quoting some college professor. It mentioned seed pods, Miles, giant seed pods, found somewhere west of town last summer. For a moment longer he stood staring at me till I nodded. Then Jack pushed the coal bin door open wider, and in the moving, searching beam of his flashlight, we saw something more, and stepped inside the bin to squat beside the things on the floor for a closer look. Each pod had burst open in four or five places, a part of the gray substance that filled them spilling out onto the floor, and now, in the closer beam of Jack's light, we saw a curious thing. At the outer edges, farthest away from the pods, the gray fluff was turning white, almost as though contact with the air was robbing it of color. And there was no denying this. We could see it. The tangled, fluffy substance was compressing itself and achieving a form. I once saw a doll made by a primitive South American people. It was made from flexible reeds, crudely plaited and tied off in places to form a head and body, arms and legs protruding stiffly from it. The tangled masses of what looked like grayish horsehair at our feet were slowly spilling out of the membranous pods, lightning in color at their outer edges, and crudely but definitely had begun forming themselves, the fibers straightening and aligning into the rough approximation, each of them, of a head. A body and miniature arms and legs. They were as crude as the doll I had seen, and just as unmistakable. It's hard to say how long we squatted there, staring in stunned wonder at what we were seeing but it was long enough to see the gray substance continue to exude, slowly as moving lava from the great pods out onto the concrete floor. It was long enough to see the gray substance lighten and whiten after it reached the air, and it was long enough to see the crude head- and limb-shaped masses grow in size as the gray stuff spilled out and to become less crude. We watched motionless, our mouths open and occasionally the brown, membranous surfaces of the huge pod cracked audibly, the sound of a brittle leaf snapping in two, and the pods crumpled steadily, slowly collapsing a little at a time as the lava-like flow of the substance they were filled with continued to flow out like a heavy, infinitely slow-moving fog. And just as a motionless cloud in a windless sky imperceptibly changes in shape as you watch, the doll-like forms on the floor became no longer dolls. They were, presently, as large as infants. And the pods that had held the substance forming them were crumbling to brittle fragments. The nearly motionless weaving and aligning of whitening fiber had continued, and now the heads were indented in a vague approximation of eye sockets, a ridge of a nose had formed on each, a crease of a mouth, and at the ends of the arms, bent now at the elbows, the star-like shapes of tiny, stiff-fingered hands were forming themselves. Jack's head and mine turned together, and we stared into each other's eyes, knowing what Presently we would see. The planks, he whispered, his voice rusty. That's where they come from. They grow. We could no longer watch it. We stood suddenly, our legs stiff from crouching and stumbled out into the basement, our eyes darting, frantically hunting normality. Then we stopped at nothing more than a pile of old newspapers, staring numbly down in the light of Jack's flash. At the front page of an old San Francisco chronicle, and the headlines and captions, the murder, violence, and corruption of a city were understandable and normal and seemed almost good to see. We wandered the basement, slowly, saying nothing, pacing and waiting, thinking what stunned, confused thoughts we were able to. Then we walked back to the open coal bin door. The impossible process inside was nearly finished, The great shattered pods lay on the floor now in tiny broken fragments an almost unnoticeable dust. And where they had been, four figures now lay, large as adults, and the thick skeins of sticky fiber that composed them were united at all edges now, the surfaces unbroken, rough as corduroy still, but smoothing out steadily and entirely white. Four blanks. The faces bland, smooth, and unmarked. They almost ready to receive the final impressions. And they lay there, one for each of us we knew. One for me, one for Jack, one for Theodora and Becky. Their weight, Jack murmured, fighting to hold on to sanity with words. They absorb water from the air. The human body is eighty percent water. They absorb it. That's how it works. Squatting beside the nearest, I lifted the hand to stare numbly at the smooth, rounded absence of fingerprints, and two thoughts filled my mind simultaneously. They're going to get us, I thought, lifting my head to stare at Jack, and at the same time, now Becky has to stay here. Chapter 10 The time was 2.21 in the morning. I just glanced at my watch, and there were nine minutes to go before I woke Jack for his shift. I was patrolling the house, walking soundlessly along the upstairs hallway in my stocking feet, and now I stopped at the door of Becky's room. Noiselessly, I opened it, walked in, and then, for the third time since midnight, I explored every inch of that room with my flashlight, just as I had every other room in the house, stooping I swept the beam under her bed. Then I opened the closet and examined it. Then the beam of blue light focused on the wall just over Becky's head. I looked at her face. Her lips were slightly parted, her breathing regular, and her eyelashes curved down to lie on her cheek. A beautiful sight. She was very pretty lying there. And I realized I was thinking how comforting it would be to be able to lie down beside her for a minute, to feel her stir sleepily and feel the warmth of her next to me. Then I turned toward the hallway and the attic stairs. There was nothing in the attic that didn't belong there. In the beam of my flashlight, I saw the row of my mother's dresses and coats suspended on hangers from a length of pipe and covered with a sheet to keep off the dust. On the floor beside them was her old cedar chest, I saw my father's wooden filing cabinet, his framed diplomas stacked on top of it, just as they'd been brought from his office. In that cabinet lay records of the colds, cut fingers, cancers, broken bones, mumps, diphtheria, births and deaths of a large part of Mill Valley for over two generations. Half the patients listed in those files were dead now. The wounds and tissue my father had treated, only dust. I walked to the dormer window where I used to sit and read when I was a boy and looked out at Mill Valley spreading away into the darkness below me. There they lay, the people of the town, sleeping out there in the dark. My father had brought a good many of them into the world. There was a night breeze stirring and off to my left on the pavement under the overhead street lamp the fuzzy expanded shadows of the overhead telephone wires swung soundlessly back and forth over the deserted street. A lonely sight. I could see the McNeely's front porch, standing out sharply in the electric nighttime glare of the streetlight and the black-shadowed bulk of their house behind it. I could see the Greesons' porch, too, i played house there with Dot Greason when I was seven years old. Their long porch railing sagged inward in a shallow curve, and it needed painting, and I wondered why they'd let it go. They'd always kept up their place very neatly. Past the Greasons, I could make out the white picket fence around Blaine Smith's place. This town lying out there in the darkness was filled with neighbors and friends. I knew a lot of them at least by sight or to nod or speak to on the street. I'd grown up here from boyhood. I'd known every street, house and path, most of the backyards and every hill, field and road for miles around. And now I didn't know it anymore. Unchanged to the eye, what I was seeing out there now in my eye and beyond that in my mind was something alien. The lighted circle of pavement below me, the familiar front porches, and the dark mass of houses and town beyond them were fearful. Now they were menacing, all these familiar things and faces. The town had changed, or was changing, into something very terrible and was after me. It wanted me too, and I knew it. A stair tread creaked, There was the sound of a soft footstep, and I swung in the darkness, crouching low, my flashlight raised as a weapon. Quietly, Jack said, ''It's me.'' And I flicked on the light and saw his face, tired and still sleepy. When he'd stopped beside me, I turned the light off, and for some moments we stood looking out at Mill Valley, the sleeping house under our feet, the street outside, the entire town were still and deathly silent. Low ebb time for the human body and spirit. After a few minutes, Jack murmured, Been downstairs lately? Yeah, I said, then answered his unspoken questions. Don't worry, they've each had a hundred cc's of air intravenously. Dead? I shrugged. If you can say that about something that's never been alive, really, in any case, they're reverting. Back to the gray stuff? I nodded and in the starlight from the window, I saw Jack shiver. Well, he said then, trying to keep his voice casual, it was no delusion. The blanks are real. They duplicate living persons. Manny was wrong. Yeah. Miles, what happens to the original when the blanks duplicate a man? Are the two of them walking around? Obviously not, I said, or we'd have seen them. I don't know what happens, Jack. And why should your patients all check in with you, trying to convince you nothing was wrong? They were lying, Miles. I just shrugged. I was tired and irritable, and I'd have snapped at Jack if I tried to answer. Well, he said then, sighing wearily as he spoke, whatever is happening, we have to assume that it's still confined to Mill Valley in the immediate area, because if it isn't... He shrugged and didn't finish. Then he went on. So every house and building, every enclosed space in the entire town has got to be searched right away, Miles. He said quietly. And every last man, woman, and child has got to be examined. Just how and for what, I don't know. But that's got to be figured out and then done fast. He was silent. Then he said, the local or state police can't do it. They haven't the authority and try to imagine explaining this to them anyway. Miles, this is a national emergency. He turned to me. It actually is, as real as any we've ever faced. It may be more than that, a threat new to history. Again he paused and continued his voice quiet, matter-of-fact and very earnest. So somebody, Miles... The Army, Navy, the FBI, I don't know who or what, but somebody has to move into this town as fast as we can get them here, and they'll have to declare martial law, a state of siege or something, anything, and then do whatever has to be done. His voice dropped. Root this thing out. Smash it, crush it, kill it. We stood there a moment or so longer, while I thought about what might be lying all around us, under the roofs out there, hidden in secret places. And it wouldn't bear much thinking about. There's some coffee downstairs, I said, and we turned toward the stairs. In the kitchen, I poured us each some coffee. Then Jack sat down at the table while I leaned back against the stove. All right, Jack, I said then. But how? What do we do? Telephone the president or something? Just ring up the White House, and when he answers the phone, tell him that out here in Mill Valley, which voted right in the last election, we've found some bodies, except they aren't really bodies, but something else, we don't know what, and please send the Marines right away. Jack shrugged impatiently. I don't know, but we've got to do something. We have to find a way to reach people who can act. Quit clowning, figure something. I nodded. All right, chain of command. What? Eyes narrowing, I stared at Jack, suddenly excited, because this was the answer. Listen, who do you know in Washington? Someone who knows you, knows you're not crazy, and that when you tell this story, you mean it, and it's true. Somebody who can start the ball rolling and keep this moving up a notch at a time till it reaches someone who can do something. After a moment or so, Jack shook his head. Nobody. I I don't know a soul in Washington. Do you? No, I slumped back against the stove. Right to your congressman. Then I remembered and shrugged. I do know one guy at that. The only person in Washington I know in any kind of official capacity at all. Ben Eichler. He was an upperclassman when I started school. He's in the regular army now, works in the Pentagon. But he's only a lieutenant colonel. I don't know anyone else. He'll do, Jack said quickly. The army could handle this, and he's in it, right in the Pentagon, and with a pretty good rank. At least he could speak to a general without being court-martialed. All right, I nodded. No harm trying him, at least. I'll phone him. I lifted my cup to my mouth and took a sip of coffee. Jack watched, scowling, the impatience rising up in him till it burst out. Now, damn it, Miles, now, what are you waiting for? Then he said, I'm sorry. But, Miles, we've got to move. Okay. I set my cup down on the stove, then walked to the living room, Jack, right behind me. Then I picked up the phone and dialed zero. Operator, I said when she answered. Now I spoke very slowly and carefully. I want to phone Washington, D.C., person to person, Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Eichler. I don't know his number, but it's in the book. I turned to Jack. There's an extension in my bedroom. I said, go listen in. In the phone at my ear, I heard the remote little beep-beep sounds, the tiny clicks, the faint electronic hummings and silences, then the ringing began in the little black disc at my ear. The third ring was interrupted, and Ben's voice sounded clear and tinny in my ear. Hello? Ben! I realized that I'd raised my voice the way people do in long-distance phone calls. This is Miles Bennell in California. Hi, Miles! The voice was suddenly pleased and cheerful. How are you? Fine, Ben, swell. Uh, Did I wake you up? Why, hell no, Miles. It's 5.30 a.m. here. Why would I be sleeping? I smiled a little. Well, I'm sorry, Ben, but it's time you were up. We taxpayers aren't paying your fancy salary to have you lie around in bed all day. Listen, Ben, I spoke seriously. Have you got some time, a a good half hour maybe, to sit and listen to what I have to tell you? It's terribly important, Ben, and I want to explain it fully. I want to talk as though this were a local call. Can you give me some time and listen carefully? Sure. Wait a second. There was a pause of several moments. Then the clear, faraway voice said, Go ahead, Miles. I'm all set. I said, Ben, you know me. You know me very well. I'll start by telling you I'm not drunk. You know I'm not insane. And you know I don't play foolish practical jokes with my friends in the middle of the night or any other time. I got something to tell you that's very hard to believe. But it's true. And I want you to realize that while you listen, okay? Yeah, Miles? The voice was sober, waiting. About a week ago, I began slowly on a Thursday. And then talking quietly and leisurely, I tried to tell him the entire story, beginning with Becky's first visit to my office and winding up some 20 minutes later with the events of tonight right up to the present moment. It isn't easy explaining a long, complicated story over the telephone, though, not seeing the other man's face. And we had bad luck with the connection. At first I heard Ben, and he heard me, as clearly as though we were next door to each other. But when I began telling him what had been happening here, the connection faded. Ben had to keep asking me to repeat, and I almost had to shout to make him understand me. You can't talk well, you can't even think properly when you have to repeat every other phrase. And I signaled the operator and asked for a better connection. After a little delay, the connection was cleared up, but I'd hardly resumed when a sort of buzzing sound started in the receiver in my ear, and then I had to try to talk over that. Twice the connection was broken off completely, the dial tone suddenly humming in my ear, and finally I was mad and shouting at the operator. It wasn't a satisfactory conversation at all. And when I'd finished, I wondered how it all must have sounded to Ben the width of a continent away. He answered when I'd finished. I see he said slowly, then paused for a moment or so, thinking. Well, Miles, he said then, what do you want me to do? I don't know, Ben. The connection was pretty good at the moment, but you can see that something has to be done. You can see that. Ben, get the story moving right away. Move it on up in Washington till it reaches someone who can do something he laughed. A forced laugh from the stomach. Miles, remember me. I'm a lieutenant colonel in the Pentagon building. I salute the janitor. Why me, Miles? Don't you know anyone here who could really... No, damn it! I'd be talking to them if I did. Ben, it has to be somebody who knows me and knows I'm not crazy. And I don't know anyone else. It has to be you, Ben. You've got to... All right. All right. His voice was placating. I'll do what I can, do all I can, if it's what you really want. I'll give this whole story to my colonel within an hour. I'll go see him and wake him up. He lives here in Georgetown. I'll tell him just what you told me, as well as I followed it. And I'll add my own report that I know you well, and that you're a sane, sober, intelligent citizen, and that I am personally certain you're speaking the truth, or believe that you are. But that's all I can do, Miles, absolutely all, even if it means the end of the world before noon. Ben paused for a moment, and I could hear the electrical silence of the wires between us. Then he added quietly, And Miles, it won't do one bit of good, because what do you expect him to do with that story? He's not imaginative, to put it mildly. And even if he were, the colonel's no man to stick his neck out. You know what I mean? He wants his star before he retires. Maybe a couple of them. And he's very conscious, asleep or awake, of what goes into his service record. He's worked up a reputation ever since West Point for good, hard, practical common sense. Not brilliant, but sound. That's his specialty. You know the type. Ben sighed. Miles, I can just see him going to his general with a story like this. He wouldn't trust me to sharpen a pencil from then on. Now it was my turn to say. I see. Miles, I'll do it, if you want me to. But even if the impossible happened, even if the colonel took this to the brigadier, who took it to the major general, who carried it on up to three or four star level, what the hell are they going to do with this? By that time, it'll be a weird fourth- or fifth-hand story started by some fool of a lieutenant colonel they've never heard of or seen. And he got the story in a phone call from some crackpot friend, a civilian out in California somewhere. Do you see? Can you actually imagine this, reaching a level where something could be done and then having it actually done? My God, you know the Army. My voice was tired and defeated as I said, "Yeah." I sighed and said, Yeah, I see, Ben. And you're right. I'll do it. And to hell with my service record. That's not important. If you can see even a chance that it'll help at all. Because I believe you. I don't say it's impossible that you're being hoaxed in some way for some weird reason. But at least something's happening out there that ought to be looked into. And if you think I should... No, I said. Now my voice was firm and definite. No, Ben forget it. I'd have known better myself if I thought about it, because you're completely right. It would be useless. There just isn't any point in wrecking your service record when it wouldn't do one bit of good. We talked for a minute or so longer, and Ben tried to think of something helpful and suggested getting in touch with the papers, but I pointed out that they'd treat the story like one more UFO item probably be very cute and humorous about it. He suggested the FBI, then. I said I'd think about it, promised to keep in touch with them and all that. Then we said goodbye and hung up. A moment or so later, Jack came down the stairs. Well, he said, and I just shrugged. There wasn't anything to say. After a moment, Jack said, Want to try the FBI? I didn't know or much care at that point, and I just nodded at the telephone. There's the phone. Go ahead if you want to. Jack opened the San Francisco phone book. A few moments later, he dialed the number, and I watched him. 552-2155. Jack held the phone at an angle to his ear so I could hear, and I heard the ringing sound begin. It was interrupted. A man's voice said, And the line went dead. A moment later, the dial tone began. Jack dialed again, very carefully. He finished, and before the ringing could begin, the operator cut in. "'What number are you calling, please?' Jack told her, and she said, "'Just a moment, please.' Then the ringing began, and it continued. Ring, then a pause, ring, then a pause, for half a dozen times. "'Your party does not answer,' the operator said presently, in that mechanical telephone company voice they use. For just a moment, Jack held the phone before him, staring at it. Then he raised it to his mouth. Okay, he said softly. Never mind. He looked up at me and spoke quietly, his voice rigidly calm. They won't let the call get through, Miles. There's someone there. We heard him answer, but they won't ring the number again for us. Miles, they've got the telephone office now. God knows what else. I nodded. Looks like it, I said, and then the panic ripped loose in our minds.